Welcome to the Psychology World Podcast. I'm Matt Connor Whiteley, bringing you psychology news and easy to understand and engaging psychology facts. For more information and the backlist episode show notes and more information on psychology topics, please go to connorwhiteley.net and I hope you enjoy the show. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 10 of the Psychology World Podcast with me, Connor Whiteley. And it is 10 episodes now, so thank you all of you for helping me for helping me make the first 10, ep- 10 episodes. I really do appreciate it. Quick announcement before we dive into the psychology news section. section. From now on, I am going to be doing these news updates and personal updates pretty much the Friday before the episode goes out. Now, for people who this is the first episode, or people who are a bit confused about that, the way how I did these for the first ten episodes, well, the first nine, because this is the tenth episode, is that I used to record these way in advance, advance because I was at university, well, I still am at university, and I had to record these all in advance, advance. but because of that emergency episode, the emergency news and update section I had to do roughly about the 13th of December and it turned down quite good quality I'm taking my microphone to university and I'll be and I'll be pretty much be dedicating Fridays which are my free days to podcasting so this will be a lot more live for example for example even now today is the 8th is it the 8th Nope, sorry. This is the tenth of <laughs> yeah, this is the tenth of January, twenty twenty, as I have record this. So basically, it means you'll be getting a lot more up to date news, and a lot more of an up, and a lot more of a up to date personal update. So let's dive into the psychology news, and as I'll be doing more updated stuff, and stuff, I've just got the December edition of the Psychologist. Which I'm just going to tell you a few bits about that point that were interesting to me. I got quite a bit, here, so I'm just gonna pick. I'm just gonna pick out a few notes because I'm just gonna finish the December edition off. So there are quite a few interesting things. So, so one of them was that we eat more when we are with others, and this is through the social facilitation effect. So basic, yes, yeah, so like. Uh, basically, it means through social facilitation and by social activity, we are more likely to eat more. Quick bit of news, very quick, very, very quick. And something else that drew my attention was public apologies. Six, six studies showed that embodied remorse was, was effective with certain groups, but they failed to improve rates of public forgiveness. So basically, what well, a very short um note to means is that when we make a public apology and a company says it is that you need to show remorse when you make an apology this is more likely to make you believed however it does not mean that you will improve rates of public forgiveness it doesn't mean that the public will forgive you and your company and to be honest i personally think that that just i think that will take time that will take time. For example, some people have forgiven Facebook for the Cambridge Analytical scandal, which is when Facebook gave Cambridge Analytica tons of data without user consent. People were outraged at the time, but now they've sort of forgiven them. 
or at least some people have. I still think it's a growth it's a great misuse of data, but still still and then yes and then the last thing I wanted to point out, which I think is very interesting, is that somebody has somebody has written the psychology of Brexit book and I'll tell you the, the title. So the Brexit so the psychology of Brexit from psychodrama and behavioural science science. So in case anyone's listening who doesn't know what Brexit is, is that Brexit is, because this podcast is available internationally. So Brexit is the UK leaving the EU, which is a massive trade organisation. I won't go into it too much because my opinions are going to come out and I don't want to offend people. This I think is very interesting because I, I'm, I'm reading and I'm fascinated with the psychology of Brexit because, I don't know, Again, I am trying to mute what I say too much because I don't want to offend people. And I know that both sides, so both people who want to remain in the EU and people who want to leave the EU, both have quite valid cases. Of course, I still have my opinion opinion on it. So I just want to read you a few sections because there's a massive interview here. So you can tell that this guy's a Remainer because of some of that he says. He says... You know, I've just said that, and that sort of says it. I just want to say, I though, well, I'm not old enough to vote. Well, when the EU referendum was done in 2016, I wasn't old enough to vote. However, I think the UK should stay in the EU. The EU, and that's all. And that's all I'm going to say on it. So, something from the interview, two things really pointed out to me. So, what it says is, is that you discuss how Brexit is often referred to in psychological terms such as national self-harm and this was the response the self-harm metaphor has been particularly prevalent in my view it is interesting that commenters so freely refer to self-harm but very little regard to the suffering of people who actually self-harm in a lived reality it shows us how far we have gone to to promote mental health awareness and sympathy when political commenters refer to Brexit as a form of self-harm, it is far from sympathetic. It depicts Brexit as a reckless act of indiscriminate endangerment, hinting that we should all be afraid of people who are so afflicted as to self-harm themselves. The concern is not for the actor who is self-harming, it is for the welfare of the bystander. In short, People who say Brexit is a form of self-harm have little sympathy for Brexiteers. What concerns them is the collateral damage to Remainers. In other words, we are worried about themselves when we uh, when we think about this as psychologists. We should see it as troubling reflection on how mainstream society talks about self-harm as a mental health issue. Issue and before I've only skimmed read that read that, but. It does, but just reading it, I think that was very interesting, simply because, at least in the UK, we constantly mention mental health and we're constantly promoting it. However, it just shows that even though we've come so far from a few years ago, we still have so much further to go, because even in this political climate, national self-harm, that is no sympathy for people who actually self-harm. And, and, as, people, and as a person who knows people who have self-harmed, this is awful because you should be helping them and you shouldn't be taking it as a light-hearted joke and taking that term because national self-harm 
that's not what self-harm actually is. And I don't know, I think this just lightens it a bit more. So, yeah, and it just, and it just shows how bad mainstream society is. So, a tip for anyone out there, if you know somebody who's self-harm, or I think a tip for all of us to take away from this small section is that whenever we talk to someone that could be perceived as, perceived as not right, so even if it's colloquial, for example, whenever we want to say something like national self-harm, I think we should stop and think, is this appropriate or is this what society should actually be saying? So that's just one thing and I hope that made sense. But the one that I definitely wanted to point out to you or wanted to read out is... Uh, let me find it now. Actually, I I wasn't going to read this one, but but this is what the article says. In the book, you discuss 10 lessons from the psychology of Brexit. Which is the most important? The one about perspective. People make partisan decisions, but systematically overestimate their own logic and soundness. Both sides consider themselves resistant to delusion, while believing their adversaries to be deluded beyond rescue. In this book, I spent a lot of time explaining how this happens and how it applies not only to Brexit commentators, but psychologists too. This ne- this automatically whacks the hell on the head because because throughout the Brexit argument, I have always pointed out, even though I'm a Remainer, I've always pointed out, and I've always, I've always, whenever I get really into the Brexit argument. Later on, or even before, I know I'm going to have a Brexit conversation. For example, when I go around to my nans, and I, I always make sure I take a stand back, and I sort of step away from it, just so I can get pers- get perspective and I can acknowledge both sides of the argument. Because when it comes to Brexit or another political thing, for example, I, I can imagine some of you are American and. And this actually applies for all political decisions. Positions when you elect someone who is generally seen as disastrous, nobody knows what they're going to be like. We are all just guessing, and there will always be arguments for something, and against people, and against something. So, I think perspective is really important because, yes, we need to form our own opinions, opinions ideally based on facts. But we need to be respectful to others and we need to acknowledge that they also have value. For example, if we take Brexit, Brexit, I'm going to try and keep my own opinions out of this, but but even though, and actually I will include my own opinion, yes, I think it could be disastrous for the country and it will leave us worse off, but I acknowledge that the other side, for people who want Brexit, that it does present opportunities for us because it does mean that we can negotiate our own trade deals, which could be very beneficial. Personally, I don't see that happening in the long term, but I acknowledge it. And this is what I think we should all do. You just need to take a step back sometimes and think, and just think about it. So, I'm really sorry if that news section offended anyone, and I only just realised that this was very political, and I don't like to put political stuff on this podcast but it's just something to think about so let's move on to the personal update section
So, moving on to my personal update after the week. It has been a, cra- a crazy week, to be honest, because I definitely think I, I bit off more than I could chew. Because the plan for this week was was record Gather End Times, which is one of my sci-fi fantasy books in an audio, in or in audio audio and that was fine that took that took four days but I really had to work myself into the ground there which was not healthy and was not good and then so that was a bit chaotic and then I've also been working on I oh, this week I can happily say that the second edition of the psychology of human relationships first draft is done so at some point I'll be proofreading that I'll send it off to an editor and then I'll be able to put that on pre-order the week before I come back for reading week. I will tell you an exact date soon on the podcast. And of course on the podcast I'll tell you when it's available on pre-order. And of course for pre-order I'll do it 99 cents for pre-order week. And then yes, and then on launch week it will go up a bit. And then after launch week it will go up a lot more. And then what will happen? What else has been happening this week? It's just so much has happened. So that was happening. I got the audio book done Wednesday, that I was really happy with. And then Thursday and Friday, so today and yesterday, I really wanted to get tons of podcasting done because, yeah, because of course, the content episodes I have to record way in advance sometimes, sometimes because of how life works. Life works. Yes, yes, and so yes, and so I've been recording. So today. I've been recording episodes, I think, till uh, the content episodes up till April. I've got three more to record, which are the developmental ones. So that was that, so that I really wanted to get done over the two days because I know it'd be a lot easier for me, and I could get and I could work on the forensic psychology book today if I had a bit of time left over. Because I've got two chapters of that so far. But before I go back to university on Sunday. I dearly want to get another two chapters done. That will not be happening, I can assure you. Now, but I want to at least get one more done in two days. In two days, this will be just be using my notes and converting them into a chapter. So it doesn't sound that hard. <laughs> but it is. But I love psychology and I love writing, so it's fine. And I just love life, to be honest. To be honest. But I went out yesterday to see some family members. And I came back feeling so drained, so drained because I love my family and I love oh these two family members I went to go and see were just so drained. I came back feeling so drained, so tired that I could not podcast. I tried to get into the mood for it, but because I was so drained by these two people, I honestly couldn't. So that's left me to today. I've had to do tons of podcasting, even though I love. And now I'm so glad, to be honest, I'm actually quite glad I have because I love audio and I love podcasting. So I was just going, I've just been going on and on and on. Of course, with a few breaks to let my voice break, for example, after I record this personal update section, I'm going to take a 15 minute break just so my voice can like relax because I can feel it. I can feel my throat go like I'm going a bit. So, so that's that. Um, so next week... So next week, well, yes, by the end of next week, so the week that you hear this is going out, I will, I should have the forensic psychology book done 
and I do need to finally type up all my social psychology notes and so I can start to write this, the second edition. So um, that's the personal update done. I feel like I, I feel like that was going to be a bit more organised, but um, hey ho, and let's move on to today's episode. So today's podcast episode will be on the cognitive or psychological reasons why major depression disorder or more commonly known as depression can form. So the main theory in cognitive psychology for why depression is a cause is called Beck's theory. Now Beck's theory was published in 1967 and it states that cognition is the main reason behind depression and it focuses on the impact that a change in automatic thoughts can have on behaviour. And this theory, when I was taught it, I thought this was rubbish, because, I don't know, as good as the teacher was, I think this is the one area where she didn't do it as well as she could have, because, I don't know, if we, I found tons of thoughts with it, but when I learned the theory myself, I now know that this is a good theory, and I, and I understand why it's one of the most famous theories at least that I've come across. So the theory focuses on three things that work together to cause depression. The cognitive triad. Now these are negative beliefs about the self, the world and the future. These influence the automatic thoughts to be pessimistic, which makes sense because this is a lot of this is a lot of this is a lot of what depressed people do. For example, they think themselves as useless, the world hates them and they don't have a future. And then they have negative schemas. The negative beliefs about themselves become generalised and people start to think negatively about everything that happens to them. So one example of this is that let's say that a student gets a bad grade. Um, yeah, a bad grade. So a non-depressed person might think that ah, maybe I'm useless at that subject. subject. But a depressed person might go, oh, I'm... Oh, I'm useless at that subject, I'm useless at school, I'm useless at life, I might as well just quit. Quit, so that becomes very generalised, they apply to all aspects of their life. Then the final one is faulty thinking patterns, and in this one, people think and make illogical conclusions because of how they process information is biased. And this links into the other ones, such as schemas and the cognitive triad, triad simply because... So they will always process information negatively and with a depressed thinking soul. Yes, a cognitive soul, which is what we're going to look at next in these studies. So overall, that's the yes, that's the theory side of it. However, there are other cognitive reasons or biases that can cause depression to occur. For example, in our first study, Aloy Abrahamson and Francis, 1999. This... This study I do love, by the way, by the way, because this focuses on cognitive stuff. This is how you think. So this is a quasi-experimental, and this is a longitudinal study, so a study that happened over time for five and a half years with a questionnaire and structured interviews. So freshmen, this was obviously a US study, were given a questionnaire to determine their cognitive style, so how they think, full fault, and they were split into two groups based on the results. High risk, which was the negative thinking style, believed that negative life events were catastrophic. 
and the results meant they were flawed and useless. During the first two and a half years, high-risk people were more likely to develop symptoms of major depression, and the percentage what was 17 people of the high-risk group group developed these these symptoms however only one percent of the low risk groups are the people who fought positively and then the high risk people were more likely to develop suicidal thoughts and behaviors and this was 28 percent of the of the negative thinking style group compared to only 13 percent of the high risk no sorry of the low risk group in conclusion, a negative cognitive style can lead to the development of major depression. This study I do quite like, we're sort of inching into critical thinking now. This study I do like because it's, because again, it says high internal validity because it does show what it wants to and it measures that and it measures how cognitive style can impact the development of depression. See, this has a very good sample um sample age i forget the technical term now but it does have a good sample because students are quite likely to develop depression because of the stress and the pressure from university yeah. so that's a positive no <laughs> it's a positive of the study not the positive of people are developing depression i realize how that sounds uh, yeah, but again, it's what I like about podcasting, because you can just speak, and you can just be human, and hopefully that's something that you all like. Like, however, a negative of this study is, I'm not sure if, I'm not sure that there's as much of an effect on cognitive style as the study makes out, because, because personally, I believe that cogn- that cognitive style is a massive that plays a massive part on how we think. And of course, thinking negatively can increase the chance of developing depression. But if you look at this study, the difference between 28% and 13% is not massive because it's still under 50%, it's still under, it's still under a third. So a lot of these people did not develop symptoms of depression or suicidal thoughts. And yes, there was a difference, but there was not a massive difference. And another thing is that we, is that temporal validity, this was done 21 years ago. And of course, we've seen explosions of the internet, we've seen much more rapid globalisation and a massive rise of social media. So what would the difference be between these groups? Because I personally believe I'm not, this is my opinion here, but if you think about it, with younger people, if we simply focus on that, it's being exposed to a lot more social media, and we know that mental health is rising because of these exposure from social media, I actually expect a much larger gap between this. For example, we could possibly see high-risk people having suicidal thoughts and behaviour 60% of the time compared to low-risk people maybe only 20% of the time. So I think this research should definitely be redone. So moving on to our next study, which is Casaras and all 2007. Again, this is quasi-experimental using eye-tracking technology, which I recently did an experiment of this in my university. And it's quite good. It's quite good. I'm not going to hype it up because you basically just wear some glasses and it tracks your eye movements. So it's quite impressive. 
I guess. Well, I liked it, but I was a yeah, but yeah, but I was sort of in the oh wow, this is amazing. I've heard of this, but I've never used it before. So, so uh, what the researcher did was using the Beck Depression Index, the subjects were assessed for depressive symptoms, and they were split into two groups the depressed people and the non-depressed people. Then the subjects were shown 32 Im images paired with a positive, neutral and negative stimuli and each picture was shown for three seconds. Using the eye tracking technology, the researchers measured what stimuli the subjects first focused on and how long they focused on it for before switching to another one. The results showed that depressed people have an attention bias for the negative stimulus because they looked at the negative stimulus for longer and they found it hard to move on to another stimulus. So depressed people, in other words, focus on the negative and they focus on, well, yeah, they always focus on um, on the negative. Now this is just uh, biases in their thinking patterns, which is a shame. Which is a shame, but what we're going to look at next episode is psychological treatment, which is well, which is at least cognitive behavioural therapy is largely based on this, but I'll leave that for next episode. It is interesting. So, moving on to critical thinking. A positive of this study is that, is that this study has a potentially high ecological validity. So this is that the results can be applied to the real world. To the real world. Because as humans, just walking about, watching the media, maybe social media, videos, real world, real world situations, for example, going out, having a meal and just life happening, we are constantly exposed to images to some extent because just sight and seeing stuff can be perceived as images and you can always do situational factors for example how we're feeling the situation as the positive negative and neutral stimulus for example typically a birthday party would be positive a funeral would be negative so the procedure does relate to real life to some extent so ecological validity i think this study has so you can apply these findings to everyday life and the general population. But a negative of this study is that numbers were not mentioned in this study. I imagine in the original paper that I wasn't able to find was I give you the actual numbers. However, I imagine that even the real numbers used in the study would not be 50-50 a split. For example, I mean 100 depressed people and 100 non-depressed people. So it's possible that there were more non-depressed people than depressed people, or let's use the example of a lot more depressed people than non-depressed people. So if there's more data to make conclusions about depressed people, people than non-depressed people, how do we know that non-depressed people don't do the same attention bias than the depressed people? And I know you're all probably thinking that I'm talking like rubbish, but of course, we know there's an attention bias because if you ever meet a depressed person, like I have had a few quite depressed friends. God, it, <laughs> it almost makes me sound like I make people like I make people depressed, but I promise you, I don't. Um, yes, um, I've completely lost my train of thought now. Yes, but yes, but in these critical thinking sections, I'm always talking about what the study shows. And how the study itself can be improved. 
So it does say there were 200 depressed people and only 50 non-depressed people. So all these 200 people have shown us that they have an attention bias. But all these non-depressed people have shown they don't have this attention bias for the negative. Can you really draw conclusions? Because there's 150 extra data sets for the depressed people. So to be honest, no, you can't. So that's something to think about. And no, that's an extreme example. But if you ever do your own research, or if you ever have psychology family members, you just need to bear in mind that you really should try and have equal numbers. So bringing everything together. So, so Beck's theory of depression in 1967 focused on the cognitive triad, negative schemas, faulty thinking patterns. Anoy, Abrahamson and Francis 1999 showed us that by having a negative thinking style this can increase the chances of you developing depression or having more suicidal thoughts. Kerasenol 2007 showing us that depressed people tend to have an attention bias for the negative. So I hope that you found this useful. Um, I hope you enjoyed the episode. So have a great week and I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening today. I hope that you found it useful and engaging. Well, if you want the show notes, backlist episodes, and more information on psychology on psychological topics, please check out connorwhitely.net. And if you want to get a free book as well as other news about writing and psychology, then please check out. Yeah, but then please sign up for my newsletter at connorwhitely.net. Have a great week, everyone.